All right, let's talk sermon. Uh, We go to the scriptures every week because it's there that we see the person and work of Jesus most clearly revealed. Uh, This week we're finishing our series titled Liturgical Living. I'll explain both those words in a minute. Uh, But we're trying to show that we can learn not just what to believe when we gather on Sundays, but actually learn how to live from what we do uh, on Sundays. And so this week we'll be talking about living the benediction. And so if you would, uh, please stand for our scripture reading. It's from Romans 12, 3 through 21. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I said, uh, we are wrapping up a series that we're calling uh, Liturgical Living. Uh, if the word liturgy uh, is new to you, that's, uh, that's okay. Let me, let me just explain it. It's at the top of our bulletin, but our liturgy is simply the order of your worship on Sundays. It's the form and the structure of what you do when you gather together on Sunday. And so uh, some churches might be more formal in their liturgy. Some are less formal in their liturgy, but there really is no such thing as a church that is liturgical in a church that's not liturgical, because all churches have a form and a structure. The question is, what is the form? What is the structure? Right? So liturgy is just the form of our corporate worship when we gather together. And then living, liturgical living. We, we all want to know how to live. We all want to know how to live what the ancients, the philosophers have called the good life. We all want to know how to go about living the good life. Life. And what we've been trying to say for these last couple of weeks is that on 
Sundays when we gather, we can actually go beyond simply learning what to believe or what not to believe, but actually learning how to live. Actually learning how to live from what we do. And so let me, let me try to illustrate that with uh, live theater. Uh, let's call it opening night for Wicked on Broadway. I hear it's a great play, never seen it. But let's call it opening night for Wicked on Broadway. The lights come on, the curtains draw back, the actors take their states, take their spots. When they take the stage on opening night, that is not the first time they are taking the stage for the play. They have been through a series of dress rehearsals to get them ready for opening night. It is not the first time where they drew the curtains, lights came on, and they engaged and went through the play. They have been through a series of dress rehearsals, and the purpose of the dress rehearsal was to get them ready for opening night. They simply never wing it. They never wing it on opening night. And when it comes to learning how to live, you don't have to wing it either. You don't have to wing it. Because what we do on Sundays when we gather together is a dress rehearsal for how to live. It's a dress rehearsal for how to live in light of the gospel. A few weeks ago, we said that our, uh, the structure of our gathering, it has what we call a gospel logic to it. From the call to worship with God is holy to we are sinners to Christ saves us to Christ sends us. There's a gospel logic to what we're doing. And when we go through our gathering, when we go through our liturgy, we're actually learning how to live in light of the gospel, rehearsing how to live in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this week, um, we said we are living, we're talking about living the benediction. The benediction is the last thing that we do. And so let me define it for us. This is straight out of the bulletin. The benediction is a word of blessing from God to his people. He sends us back into the world to continue our worship. I want you to catch that phrase, to continue our worship. Back into the world to continue our worship. What does it look like to continue our worship as we get sent back out into the world? Well, this, this text, as you probably could recognize when you read it, has a lot of one-liners that hit like that. We simply cannot cover all of them and not be here for hours, and you don't want that. But there are some themes that we can draw out of the text to see what it looks like to then leave and continue our worship. Here are the three themes that we're going to see in the text. Think, feel, do. So what to think, how to feel, what to do. Let's start with what to think. Look at verse 3 with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So here's where Paul begins. Paul's the author of Romans. He says, by the grace that's been given to me, I'm now speaking to you, and here's what I'm saying to you. You shouldn't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't, don't think more highly of yourself than you should think. That seems like a uh, pretty straightforward command. But Douglas Moo, brilliant commentator, on this passage, 12, 3 to 21, he says there's two governing phrases. Two phrases that govern the whole of our text. The, the first one is this. Think of yourself with sober judgment. This is the first governing phrase of our passage. Think of yourself with sober judgment. And this is interesting language, right? Sober judgment. What's the opposite of sober? If you're not sober, you are what? No, that's for you guys. This means you guys. Go ahead. 
If you're not sober, you are drunk. Yeah, there we go. It's drunk judgments. Think of yourself with sober judgment. The inversion is drunk judgment. How do drunk people think of themselves? Usually, one of two directions. Like, I'm going to take over the world, man. You ain't seen nothing yet, world. Here I come. They think too high of themselves. Or what? Spiral into emotion. An emotional bliss and think too low of themselves. To think of yourself with a sober judgment means to not think too high or too low of yourself. Because to have drunk judgment means you're almost never having an accurate perception of yourself. You're never thinking of yourself accurately. It's almost always too high, too low. Sober judgment is to have an accurate assessment of yourself. And when you think of yourself without thinking too high or too low, then you can learn to see yourself as part of the church the way that Paul is going to describe it right here. Let's read verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul starts out uh, describing the body like, of the church like this. One body. You are one body with many members. Now Paul's not inventing this metaphor out of nowhere. He doesn't use the body metaphor out of nowhere. Uh, Greek, Roman thinkers, they, they talked about the state as a body of interdependent members. But here's the difference. This is why what, what Paul is doing is so radically countercultural in the first century. When, when Rome and the Greek thinkers thought of the state as a body, they always used it to reinforce hierarchy. My place over you in society. It was always used to reinforce my position of elevation over those in Roman society. And when Paul uses it, he uses it to reinforce humility. So where Rome says, yeah, it's a body, but that body is used to highlight my place in society. Paul used it to highlight your place in the church. My need for you, your need for me. And he says that we are all individual members, one of another, and we bring something different to the table. We all have a different set of gifts, skills, talents that we bring to the table. And what you bring to the table doesn't threaten me. This is where uh, Roman culture and our modern culture, in particular in urban Houston, are really not that different. Because listen, in, in Roman society, your talent, your gift, your skill, whatever you brought to the table was a threat to my place in society. Right? So it's, it's the, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm in a group at work and what you bring to the table threatens my future career trajectory. That, that's fairly common for Rome as well. What you bring to the table, the more talented, skilled you are, the more of a threat you are to me in my place in society. And Paul is saying that's, that's not how it is in the church. In the church, we all bring something different, and I need you, and you need me, and we are together in this as one body. And the context that Paul is writing this into, I find in some ways really just astounding that, that Rome had about a million residents, a lot of them, Slaves and immigrants. And Paul is writing into a church 
that had affluent Romans, Jews, slaves, immigrants, and he says you are one body and you need one another. So he's saying, hey, you, you affluent Romans, listen, your, your affluence is nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. You, you need to be generous with what you have. In fact, that word generosity, you, you wanna hear something? The root definition of that word that we translate generosity, you know what it is? Simplicity. Simplicity. When it's applied monetarily, it gets translated generosity because the principle is this, that you should live in such a way that your life is simple enough that you've got enough to share with those in need. So listen, you affluent Romans, your affluence is not to be ashamed. You need to be generous with it. And, and, and here's the deal, affluent Romans, you matter. Like you matter, but you don't matter more than the slave or the immigrant, not in the church. And you, hey, slave, immigrant in the church, listen, you matter. You have the dignity of the gospel of Christ. You bring something to the table that is meaningful to this community. Your acts of mercy, it matters that you're able to care for one another. You matter, and you don't matter more or you don't matter less than the affluent Roman. You matter. We are a body of interdependent. We need one another. When you have been encountered by the gospel of Christ, you begin to think of yourself and others with the mind of Christ, and you have a sober judgment on yourself, and you see where you fit in the church and how the church needs you and you need them. It's why Paul, the same author, wrote this in Philippians 2. I'm gonna, I'll pick it up in verse three. But he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So cultivate the, cultivate the mind of Christ in you and learn to have a sober judgment of yourself. Don't think too high, don't think too low. Learn to see yourself as a needed member of the body of Christ and learn to see the others in the body of Christ as needed members for you. How do we cultivate the mind of Christ when we gather together on Sundays? Well, let's walk through it. We begin with our confession of sin when we say, hey, take a moment, sit down for a moment of silent confession, and then we corporately confess it together. When we're doing that, you know what we're giving you a chance to do? Take an honest assessment of your own heart. Take an honest look at yourself, and an honest look at ourselves is not something we always do because it's not always pretty, is it? It's not always pretty to take an honest look. It's why we rarely do it, because we don't always like what we see, but you know what we back that up with? the assurance of pardon. Because right after we take a moment to honestly look at our own heart and our own life, we then take a moment to look directly into the grace of God in Christ so that what we don't like in ourselves can be swallowed up by the grace that we have in Christ. So we swallowed up by it. And then we go to our sermon. Our, our sermons are both teaching from the scriptures and a proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's why our, teach, our, our sermons are not theological lectures. They are, we hope, Bible-saturated proclamations of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because it is only through an encounter with the grace of God and the gospel of Christ that you have a chance at having a sober judgment of yourself and to not think too high or too low. And then we sing, our singing together. Listen, some of you, you sing like me, and that's not a compliment. But let me tell you what happens when we do sing. We go from a collection of individuals to one body with one voice singing to our one God and King. No matter how we sound.
And then the communion table, we remind ourselves of Paul's words that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That at this table, we're reminded that there, that there is one body, and she lives in the Heights, and she lives in Fifth Ward, and she lives in River Oaks, and she lives in Mexico, and she lives in Saudi Arabia, and she lives in Canada, and she is messy, and she is beautiful, but there is one bread, and there is one body. We get a reminder of that every week at this table. All that we do on Sundays is to teach us not to think of ourselves too highly or too low, but with a sober judgment, having the mind of Christ. But now he moves on from what to think to how to feel. Look at verse nine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Now do one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's our second governing thought for the passage. Governing thought one, think of yourself with sober judgments. Here's the second governing thought for the passage. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Love that is genuine is not based on pretense. It is not insincere. It's not manipulative. It's not so that I can get something from you. It's not I love you so that you will do X, Y, or Z, or I love you so that you will think X, Y, or Z of me. It's also, let me say this, love that is genuine is not, I just want you to feel loved. It's that I want you to know that you actually are loved. Those are categorically different. And when I want you to feel loved, it's because I want you to feel that you actually are loved. I want you to be loved. Where are we supposed to find this kind of genuine love? Answer, family. That's why he says, love one another with a brotherly affection. Listen, that, that translation is fine, it's not wrong, uh, but let me, let me read to you what a like, wooden, literal, word-for-word -word translation would be. It goes like this. Put the love of a brother into one another, loving them dearly. Put the love of a brother into one another, loving them dearly. So here's the point. The Bible doesn't describe the church as something like a family. It describes the church as a family and says, now go love one another like that. Go and love one another like that. But I have a question. What about people I don't like, right? I mean, every community's got them. Got someone who just grates on your nerves. What about people that I don't like? I, I was at a dinner this week, um, this is really cool. Forty of us in a room uh, with John Piper, who's a retired pastor from uh, Minnesota, and somebody asked him that question: "What what do I do about people that I don't like in the church?" Here was his answer. I'm going to paraphrase it because he talked for ten minutes. Here was his answer: You ask God to give you a brotherly affection for that person. You ask God to give you a brotherly affection for that person. Why? Because what's most true of you is true of them, that they have been adopted, that they are sons and daughters of God, that they are in Christ with you, and that you are one body in Him. Where could a love like that possibly ever come from? It's in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So this is the first of what I believe is six times that the Bible calls Jesus the beloved. Do you know how many times the Bible describes you as beloved? About 60. About 60 times. About 60 times when the Bible talks about you, describing the heart of God for you, it uses the word beloved. Beloved. This is where that kind of love comes from, and it's when in our call to worship, when we gather together, we want you to hear this, the Father saying to you, I want to be in your presence. Gather, come, I want to be near you. And our singing, our hearts are stirred with deep affection from this kind of love toward this kind of love. Love that will be found nowhere outside of what Christ has for you in our peace and our passing of the peace. When we say, turn and greet one of the peace of Christ, listen, we, we know that there is an experiential difference between introvert and extrovert in that moment. We get it. But you know what you're doing? You're taking the love that Christ has given and put into you and saying, because the love that, I, that he has for me, that he has for you, that we have for one another, I can say to you, peace be with you, and you can say, and also with you. It's an expression of the love, the brotherly affection that we have for one another. And then communion at the communion table, the Father is saying to us, I want to have a meal with you. I want to have a meal with you. I want to dine with you. Come and eat with me. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Thinking of yourself with a sober judgment gives you a chance to love one another like this. To see your need for each other and each other's need for you and to love one another with a brotherly affection. And that brotherly affection that we can share with one another empowers and boldens, equips us to go out into the world and put the love of Christ on display, which takes us to our third theme what to do. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So here's the principle. Be a blessing to those who hurt you. Be a blessing even to those who hurt you. And then mourn with those who mourn. In this day, they had professional mourners. They would hire mourners to come in and express sympathy. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, in the church, we don't outsource mourning with one another. We don't outsource mourning with one another, but we have so given our lives to one another that when you rejoice, I naturally rejoice. When you mourn, I cry, and I don't have to stir myself to tears. We don't outsource mourning in the church. Where in the world would Paul get this? This is what Jesus did. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The primary descriptor for the emotional life of Jesus, compassion. On the cross, what did he do? He died to give his life for those who crucified him. What, what greater blessing to those who curse you could there ever be than the Son of God dying to give his life to those who took it? And then we hit verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We'll come back to harmony, but... He says, associate with the lowly. Don't, don't just live in your inner circles, but associate with the marginalized poor in society. Live your life with them, and don't be 
wise in your own sight. Don't be the sole judge of what is right, good, and wise. Don't be the know-it-all. Where would Paul have gotten these straight from the life of Jesus? Who did Jesus spend his time with? Fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes. Listen to this. The most privileged man to ever walk the earth spent his time with some of society's most marginalized. Fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes. And then not being wise in his own sight, of course Jesus knew that the Old Testament, the sum of the Old Testament, it was about him. It was about him. But do you remember the temptation when Satan uh, made the offers to Jesus? Do you remember how Jesus responded? Did, did, did he say, all right, let me, let me tell you, you apparently don't know who I am. Let me tell you who I am. No, he quoted the Bible back to him. He quoted the Bible back to him. He took the wisdom of the scriptures and quoted it right back to him. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, there it is again, beloved, never avenge it yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now on the surface, this seems uh, reasonably straightforward. Don't, don't be somebody who just spends your days trying to get revenge. But if we lift the hood, there, there's a little something more. See the word peaceably? I love the language around it. Um, uh, you, you know, if possible, so much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This word peaceably, it's, it's an interesting word. It's interesting because of its Old Testament roots and the root definition in the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, this word translates the word shalom. Shalom. Shalom, complete and total human flourishing. Complete human flourishing, social, economic, spiritual, emotional, mental, complete and total human flourishing. And then the New Testament definition of the word is this, to cause others to live in peace, to reconcile. When you put them together, here's what I think Paul is saying. Work for the shalom of all by being agents of reconciliation. Work for the shalom of all by being agents of reconciliation. Here's how you live peaceably. Here's what it looks like to live peaceably among everyone, to live in harmony with everyone. Be agents of shalom in the world by being agents of reconciliation out in the world. You want to know what that looks like? Here you go. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Which is that not exactly what Jesus did on the cross? Is that not exactly what Jesus did on the cross? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. His body and his blood poured out and broken on the cross. Is that not exactly what he did? Is that not the point of holding bread every week? Bread that Jesus said, this is my body and a cup that he said, this is my cup broken and poured out for you, that you and me, people who once were enemies, now get to feast at a heavenly table. Enemies 
Enemies of the king brought into the kingdom to eat at the king's table. Heavenly bread, heavenly cup for people who once were enemies. Oh, the glories of the word and the table together. What does it mean to live the benediction? I want to put a bow on it right here because I want us to see it crystal clear. Here's what it looks like to live the benediction. It means that we think of ourselves with sober judgment. We, we live our lives, we go out in the world, we don't think too high, we don't think too low. And because we don't think too high and we don't think too low, we, we can have a brotherly affection for one another. We can live as one body with the love of the Father for the Son being expressed for one another. And then we embody that love in the world. Work for the flourishing of all, being agents of reconciliation. We mourn with those who mourn. We associate with the marginalized and the lowly. This is the good life. This is the life that we all want. This is the life that we have all been after. And this is what it means to be people who live the benediction. Humble. Humble. Agents of reconciliation, loving one another with a brotherly affection. Let's not complicate the Christian life any more than it needs to be. But let's do this. Think of ourselves with sober judgment. Look at one another and love with a brotherly affection. And then let's embody that love in the world. Working for the shalom of all. And as we make our way into the Advent season next week, Let's take a moment to not get so caught up and swept up in the holiday hoopla and just remember to rest and enjoy and know that this life, this life is possible because of the advent of God the Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to gather together. Thank you for the chance to open your scriptures, to come to your table, to walk through a gospel liturgy, to rehearse how we can live in the world. I pray that you would, by your grace, strengthen us, help us to think of ourselves with sober judgment, help us to love one another with a brotherly affection, and then help us to go and embody that love in the world, working for the shalom of the world, the complete flourishing of everyone, I pray for those who, um, in particular right now, those who are uh, just looking at their marriage and thinking, man, there's no end in sight. This is falling, spiraling right now. I pray they would look at this text, look at what it means to live the benediction that we've talked about, and just apply it directly to their marriage right now. May that be the convo that's had this afternoon. And may it be seasoned with salt and grace and mercy and love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.